0: Sergeant Shriver passed away last week at age 95. The Economist noted he was distinguished for his civility, altruism, and record of public service. He was also the father of Maria Shriver, California's recent First Lady. Sarge was married for 56 years to Eunice Kennedy Shriver, and as one of the activists of that remarkable political family, his drive and connections allowed him to leave quite a legacy. Sergeant Shriver played a key role in getting brother-in-law JFK elected president in the first place. He furthermore led JFK's talent hunt for his administration and for his part during it founded the Peace Corps. Shriver was a commanding general in LBJ's War on Poverty and in 1972 he joined George McGovern on the Democratic national ticket. He also helped his wife Eunice found the Special Olympics. Author Scott Stossel is deputy editor for The Atlantic magazine and is the author of the award-winning biography of our subject today, titled, Sarge, The Life and Times of Sergeant Shriver. We refer listeners to that book, as well as Mr. Stossel's posts, at TheAtlantic.com. We're pleased to have him join us today. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Scott Stossel. Thanks for having me. You spent years writing that biography, and, and you got to know uh, Sergeant Shriver pretty well, I gather. Um, you note for a current piece in The Atlantic that... Quote, his career is a rebuke to cynical journalist types like me who focus on what's wrong with things, unquote. What about Shriver? did you find inspiring?
1: Well, I mean, he really was one of the most remarkable people I've ever encountered. When I first started working on the book, I think like a lot of people, I had a a kind of vague association uh, of him having something to do with the founding of the Peace Corps and being connected to the Kennedy family, but I didn't really know everything that he accomplished uh, in his years in public life. And... I mean, you know, so so simply learning the facts of his life, you know, all the things that he did, and you alluded to some of them um, just now, you know, founding the Peace Corps, running the War on Poverty, under which uh, rubric he established programs that still exist today, like Head Start and Job Corps and Legal Services for the Poor, and, you know, running the, the Kennedy, JFK's funeral uh, at the request of uh, Jacqueline Kennedy. So you know, simply the facts of his life, um, you know, I, I've, I've said... Before and I really believe this to be true that the kind of ratio between you know, how much he accomplished and how little known he is is probably greater than for any historical figure of the second half of the 20th century. But in terms of personal qualities, uh, you know, what, what what came across from the very beginning, I started working on the book back in 1996, 1997, um, was just his indomitable energy and enthusiasm and idealism. And you know this was a a quality that led some, you know, as you said, cynical people and skeptics to to sort of uh, dismiss him as a lightweight. Like, you know, how could anybody be so idealistic or so almost naive? And yet, he was incredibly smart and incredibly forceful, charismatic leader. And in large part, it was this unbelievable ability to uh, believe that things that other people thought were impossible were in fact possible, that allowed him to accomplish all that he that he did. So it really was this. Um, You know, at a personal level, it was just this warmth and and optimism that came through, you know, even through his later years when Alzheimer's kind of eroded a lot of the the, the other parts of his brain.
0: Yeah. I don't know whether you noticed, Scott, but an NPR editor recently uh, described a trip that that she took to Syria with him. She noted the next thing you know, he was out there leading a wedding party with a sword, dancing with the participants out there and just having a great time. So I imagine among his positives was the fact that he must have been fun to be around.
1: Yeah, in the course of writing my book, you know, I kept across anecdote after anecdote (laughs) of just this sort of you know these crazy antics. I mean, everything. I mean, he drove people. He worked people incredibly hard. He had incredibly high standards. I mean, you know, people talked about Peace Corps widows, um, uh, or uh, in which you know people worked so hard for the Peace Corps that they never saw their families, and in some cases did get divorced. But this was all in the service of this sort of incredibly kind of chaotic. But fun and productive circus that he always had going around, going on around him, um, and you know whether it was uh, you know traveling abroad and getting you know sort of throwing himself into the folkways and traditions of 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 the uh, local cultures where he was off uh, you know trying to get the Peace Corps invited or visiting volunteers or you know in his own home in Maryland where you know on uh, they, they had this big estate called Timberlawn and on any given weekend um, you know maybe. Lyndon Johnson and some of his aides would be over there talking about programs for the war on poverty. and he'd still be you still running the Peace Corps, and you'd have Peace Corps executives. And then meanwhile, his wife, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, was in the process of starting the Special Olympics. So she'd have all these mentally handicapped kids running around, um getting looked after by um, high school kids and her own kids. And then they had, you know sixteen dogs at one point. <laughs> and so literally, it was just this you know ch- ch- chaos. I mean, I you know I talked to, some of the kids, including um, you know, the former first lady, and she, she says, I don't know how I survived <laughs> this." Um, but it, it, it uh, you know, all the all the kids, I think, came away feeling like a, you know, you can accomplish a lot if you've got energy and enthusiasm, and b, you know, every everyone is alike, whether or, or you know, sort of worthy of of equal dignity, whether it's the president of the United States or uh, a mentally retarded person.
0: Well, I gather that Shriver was a lawyer, young lawyer working in Illinois, trying to eliminate segregation in the schools there, and somewhere on the way, Joe Kennedy, picked him to help run the merchandise mart in Chicago, which I gather has been a major source of Kennedy family wealth over all these years. Did your research undercover what uh, what led the family patriarch to select him for that?
1: Yeah, actually, it began way back in New York. I mean, Shriver came back from World War II. He would fought in World War II at the Battle of Guadalcanal and, and uh, in the Navy and at the Battle of Santa Cruz. and um, came back and then had, had just graduated from law school right before going into the uh, into the Navy, and you know, started work as a as a lawyer um, and found it sort of stultifyingly boring. And then moved over to Newsweek, where he was working as kind of a junior editor and was finding that a little bit yeah. stultifying. And sort of through Catholic uh, you know society connections in New York came to the attention of of Joe Kennedy and, and Joe, you know, who was very famous for sizing people up immediately and deciding whether he liked them or not and whether they were any good, hired Shriver as kind of a right hand man. So he worked for him for a little while in New York and then got sent out to Chicago to to start running the the merchandise mart there. And then meanwhile, during this Shriver separately uh, through sort of other means, met Joe's daughter, Eunice Kennedy, and started courting her. So basically, you know, for s- seven years he was working for Joe Kennedy in Chicago and rising in prominence there, you know, becoming head of the school board and head of something called the um, Catholic uh, Interracial Council, working on civil rights there. So he, he's he's working for Joe Kennedy and trying to um, date and marry the boss's <laughs> daughter, which he finally did in 1953.
0: Well, John F. Kennedy is still the only Catholic ever elected president, and, um, and Shriver played a key role in, in, in JFK's campaign to get the nomination during some key primaries, Wisconsin and West Virginia. It turned out victories in those states really did open up the path, to nomination. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, Shriver had a number of roles. He, he, was, he worked hard in West Virginia and Wisconsin and a number of other states um, try, trying to secure primary victories. And then when they got to the general election, Shriver, again, because of his connections to the civil, the sort of early civil rights community and the African-American community in, in Illinois, was placed in charge of what um, the Kennedy campaign called the Civil Rights Division which really was basically uh, in charge of, of getting out the african american vote on 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 behalf of of kennedy. So shriver had known, you know, Martin Luther King. Um, he was the first person I think to invite King north of the mason dixon line to get, to give a talk in the in the early 50s. And there was this famous moment during the campaign where just it coincidentally, coincidentally during this time late in the campaign when Kennedy and Nixon were sort of neck and neck there was a moment where Martin Luther King who had been you know doing his his um, civil rights activism, had been sort of thrown in jail on trumped-up kind of traffic violation charges in, in, in Alabama, I think it was, or Georgia, and was sort of wallowing in jail, and uh, Coretta Scott King, his wife, was you know, terribly worried that, you know, who knows what would become him, would he get lynched, and Shriver, you know, through his civil rights connections, got wind of this, and... At one point, they were in Chicago outside uh, in a little motel room outside O'Hare airport, and he waited till all the other aides left the room and he, he he took Jack Kennedy aside and said, "Look, I think it would be you know not only the right thing to do but politically very smart for you to to call um Mrs. King. I think she's sort of in need and you know and at this point either. Nixon or kennedy could have could have made this call, but but Kennedy sort of did it over the uh w- objections and concerns of his other advisors mm-hmm. and this had this incredible uh incredibly powerful ramifying effect because what ended up happening was uh you know he offered his sympathies Martin Luther King's father, who was a prominent minister with a influential network of churches, got wind of this and said. You know what? I don't care about. I would, before I was worried that Kennedy was a Catholic, um, but anyone who would who would call my daughter-in-law in this moment of need, you know, deserves my votes, and I'm going to turn out everyone that I can on on President Kennedy's behalf. And so on election night, uh, he won the African-American vote by an overwhelming measure, and you know, many electoral analysts think that was uh, was the, the sort of key indicator that put Kennedy over the top in a very close election. So Shriver deserves some of the credit for that.
0: Well, while he was running for office, JFK talked about a youth uh, volunteer corps. As president, that translated under-brother-in-law Shriver into the Peace Corps. And that's of course, has sent 200,000 people to 75 countries over the decades. And I gather that was something that uh, Sergeant Shriver truly originated and shaped.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the, the the idea for the Peace Corps you literally originated in a throwaway line that um, one night after... Uh, Kennedy had debated Nixon in New York, and then he was due to fly in for a campaign stop to uh, University of Michigan, and he got in. At, he was delayed and got in at two in the morning, and wasn't expecting anyone to be there. And it turns out there are ten thousand Michigan students waiting for him there. And so he sort of extemporizes and says, "You know, how many of you would be willing to go serve abroad?" And he got this overwhelming response, and people started writing letters to him. And so then he gives another speech about it, Then he gets elected. And he sort of thinks, "Well, you know, that was a throwaway campaign promise. I don't need to honor it." But <laughs> Uh, people people kept clamoring for it. So he decided to you know, Shriver at this point had gone back to Chicago and was busy and g- going back into private life there and, and Kennedy calls him up and says, You know, I want you to come and, and uh start this Peace Corps for me and Shriver says, You know, you can't it's hard enough to say no to the president and even harder when he's your brother in law. So <laughs> he comes out there and really had nothing to work with other than a three few throwaway lines in a, in a speech. So he convened a team and in very short period of time, I mean, basically between like mid January and March, you know, went through dozens of proposals, conceived what the Peace Corps would be, set up, you know, kind of the, the bureaucratic and administrative structure for it, drafted legislation, and got it legislated by, I think, March 1st of of, of 1961, and then had volunteers being trained and in, in the field that summer. I mean, this is the sort of thing that could never happen today. It was a different time, but it was driven you know, largely by the, the the energy and enthusiasm of Shriver and the people that he gathered around him. And so for those first five years, he ran the Peace Corps and, you know, in some ways, I think it was the Kennedy administration's signature program I'm still, as you say, thriving today.
0: After President Kennedy was assassinated, Shriver was in a position to stay and help the Johnson administration, and he elected to do so, even though there was no love lost between LBJ and Bobby Kennedy, now leader of the family. Um, staying to help guide the next administration apparently left some Kennedy loyalists uh, pretty unhappy with Sarge.
1: Yeah, this is a, in in my book and in Shriver's life. This is sort of a running theme. I mean, I think one of the reasons that Shriver is kind of overlooked as a historical figure. I mean, a- anyone who married into the Kennedy family, um, you know, no matter how bright your your star was, you sort of risk getting overshadowed by the kind of shimmering constellation of Kennedys with all of their achievements. And this was true of Shriver um, as well as other people and. Throughout his whole career, there were all these moments, um, that first one in 1960, w- w- where he sort of put his own political ambitions aside or had them thwarted by the Kennedy family in order to, 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 to further their ambitions. So in 1960, when he went to work for the Kennedy campaign, Shriver put aside his own run for governor or senator in Illinois. And then it got sort of most stark and heated in the sixties when lyndon johnson and bobby kennedy just absolutely loathed and feared and despised each other for complicated psychological reasons <laughs> and johnson knew this um, And in nineteen sixty four you know specifically to get under bobby's skin he floated shriver's name as a possible running mate you know as to be his vice presidential nominee on the ticket in sixty four and bobby basically told shriver directly and 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 the johnson administration said you know, there's no way there's going to be a kennedy on this ticket and if there were it, w- it would be me um, and then in 1968, again, after Bobby um, had been assassinated, Hubert Humphrey at the, at the convention in Chicago wanted to name Shriver to the ticket as his running mate. Um, he liked Shriver, and there were good electoral reasons, that you know, good things that, that Shriver could bring to the ticket. But the Kennedy family uh, apparatus, blackballed him in effect and said, you know what, You know Bob, T- Teddy's too grief-stricken right now to, to run, and, but it, his turn is next. And to have Shriver, a brother-in-law, you know, he's not even a real Kennedy, he's just a Kennedy brother-in-law, <laughs> he'd be jumping the queue and pushing back um, Ted Kennedy's presidential or vice presidential chances by eight or you know, four or eight or 16 years, so we can't have that. In some ways, everything that Shriver accomplished or his greatest accomplishments were through his association with the Kennedy family, and they had a great partnership. In some ways, his own political career was, was was thwarted. So there was this weird blend of, of, of great uh, cooperation and accomplishment and, and, and tension.
0: Well, I was quite struck, Scott, by the quote you put into your, your May 2004 article, Atlantic, from a Humphrey A talking about that of uh, those events in 1968, who said, uh, we needed the goodwill of the Kennedys more than we needed Sarge, which is quite a curious statement.
1: Yeah, at that point, you know, there was a fear on Humphrey's part. I mean, I can't remember if it's quoted in that article or not, but they basically let it be known, and this necessarily wasn't necessarily the Kennedy family itself, but sort of aides and people associated with it said, in effect, you know, Humphrey, if you pick Shriver to be your nominee, I mean you may you may gain things, um, but you will lose the Kennedy wing of the Democratic Party, um, and so that's what that quote distills.
0: Very easy to imagine. You point out that, that had, had Trevor gone the ticket and carried just, just a couple of states for Humphrey, uh, the, the election could well have gone to the House. Quite quite an interesting scenario.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, these counterfactual historical things are always, you know, by definition sort of speculative and you can never know. But there's, you know, when I looked at it for my book and, 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 and looked at the data and talked to some political experts, there's good evidence that election was close enough. And the stuff that uh shriver would have brought to the ticket you know that that was when the silent majority was sort of you know white ethnic urban catholics were were moving from the democratic party to the republican party and you know maybe shriver would have kept some of them in key states and and maybe you know you would have had a democratic victory in 1968 and who knows what would have been different vietnam watergate you know all those things could have turned out differently
0: Well, in 1972, uh, uh, Sergeant Shriver does find himself on the ticket. George McGovern picked uh, Thomas Eagleton as a running mate, but Eagleton withdrew. And uh, suddenly Shriver's, you know, running for vice president. Uh, The the McGovern-Shriver team did kind of go down in the flames of Watergate-era dirty tricks. I'm kind of wondering how Shriver looked back on that 72 campaign when, when when he spoke about it
1: it was funny. You know, I asked him that directly and said, you know, do you regret this? And he said, "You know, about his thinking at the time, he said, maybe this means I was stupid, but I actually thought we had a chance to win, and I had a great time. And everyone actually, you know, basically you know, after Eagleton gets kicked off the ticket, um, you know, it was funny because when Shriver ended up on the ticket, he ended up calling his campaign plane the Lucky Seven. And that was partly named after the seven people in his family—him, his wife, and their five kids—but partly it was because he was the seventh guy that McGovern went to. He went to <laughs> Eagleton, then five other people, because by this point it was fairly clear that the McGovern um, campaign was headed for disaster. And Shriver was the first guy who said yes. And you know, partly this shows his loyalty to the party. I mean, this was—you know—no one else wanted to go near it. Partly, I think he truly believed that. You know, he had nothing to lose. Like everyone expected, McGovern to lose, and so if, in fact they could pull off a victory, boy, you know that would show how great a campaigner Shriver was, and that would be a greater electoral victory than any other his brothers-in-law had ever, had ever pulled off. But everyone, to a person, who you talked to from that campaign, I mean, at the funeral this weekend, President Boke, and he he worked as an advance man in Texas on the McGovern campaign that year. And he talked about how you know Shriver would show up, and and uh, you know even this was right before the election when things looked really bad, and you know, he was cheerful and optimistic, and uh, you know managed to keep everyone's spirits up. And then actually it was funny too because uh, Vice President Biden also spoke at the funeral, and what he said was Shriver, you know, for some reason despite his really busy schedule, decided to show up in Delaware that year to campaign, uh, make a campaign stop for Joe Biden, who was in that year running for the first time uh, for the Senate, and he was, Biden was trailing by a lot. Biden, in his, in his eulogy, basically said, you know, Shriver got so many people to turn out and so enthused them all, and Delaware is a small enough state that Biden believes Shriver actually won the election for Biden. So even um, there was sort of this, you know, joy and fun in, in, in defeat.
0: Well, in in a 2009 piece in the Atlantic, you reminisced uh, how Arnold Schwarzenegger's mother-in-law, Eunice Kennedy, had terrified you. You called her the most formidable woman you've ever met. She and her husband, uh, of course, made the Special Olympics a means to which mentally handicapped have been helped all over the world. Can you talk a bit about Eunice Kennedy's energy and also maybe a bit about her threat of hardball hardball politics?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a a famous quote from um, her father, Joseph Kennedy, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll edit for for uh, Family Radio here, but basically, <laughs> he once told uh, George Smathers, who is a a uh, Florida um, uh, politician back in the um, mid-century, he said, "You know, if Eunice had been born with um, male <laughs> genitalia, um, she, she would have been the best. Poli- she would have been president. You know, he, he believed she had the most, the best, and most ruthless political instincts. Um, but but Eunice, I mean, she, she, she was a remarkable person. I mean, as I say, she terrified me. She terrified." probably 90% of the people she she worked with but she had such relentless energy and she like her husband was you know motivated by this deep abiding catholic faith and um, you know probably because of her family experiences with her sister Rosemary who had mentally handicapped issues from the 60s onward you know, she sort of threw herself into trying to come up with programs and to and to kind of uh, alleviate the plight of these uh, you know back in the 60s many of these people were just ha- warehoused in institutions and she realized, you know, a lot of them are capable of, of benefiting from athletic activity. And, you know, she ended up founding the Special Olympics. And even though she was the, the the founder of that, I mean, her husband, Sarge, was right there alongside her the entire way. You know, if you look through the files, he's editing all of her speeches. He's involved in all the strategy discussions. A lot of the original funding came from the Kennedy Foundation's charitable institutions, which Shriver was instrumental in sort of running and, and figuring out where to dole out the funds. So, you know, she was a terrifying formidable woman who achieved an absolutely remarkable thing for the world.
0: Well, Scott, I was intrigued by one quote from her that you you put in the article, which I can't resist uh, citing. You asked her if Sarge had gotten the Peace Corps job because of his being a family member. She told you, he got the job because he was bright. If you're not bright, you don't get it. That's the rule in my family. You know, if you're bright, you're smart, you're attractive, and you're a workaholic, my family will pay attention to you, but only under those circumstances. And Sarge was all of those things. It's like, Wow. (laughs)
1: I, I, exactly no she and she was very uh, she was no nonsense and, and uh, you know when I was working on the book and I would try to talk to her I mean she was she was no dummy and she was she knew that there were tensions between the different wings of the of the Kennedy Shriver families. I think a lot of times uh, political gossip columnists would overblow these because they were very sexy and you know in, in large part the families were all coexisting and they would all they all have vacation houses down in Hyannis port on Cape Cod Massachusetts and the cousins were all getting along, and the Shriver's helped raise some of the other Kennedy family kids after um, the assassinations of their of their parents. She was, she was speaking the truth. You know, she said uh, the people who say, well, you know, Sh- Shriver was noted or accomplished what he did only because of his association with the Kennedy family or because he was being given family favors, and she said, no, that's, that's balderdash. Uh, you know, our family doesn't suffer fools gladly, and, you know, daddy, as she called Joseph P., only uh, uh, hire people who are really good and you know eventually that's why um, Jack Kennedy too you know hired Shriver for such important jobs because he recognized his talents.
0: Well Maria Shriver's been quite was quite the activist first lady here in California using her influence in many ways did you get any direct sense of how her actions were influenced by her her mom and dad?
1: Oh I mean she enormously um, you know she reveres both her parents and will will tell you at at length um, you know how much she believed that. You know she was instrumental. There is a uh, PBS documentary called American Idealist um, that aired a few years ago. That I think is now going to be airing again because of of Sarge's passing. That was she, she was instrumental in, in, in driving that. You know you look at her. And she, she, she in a lot of ways has some of the same formidable and to a lesser degree terrifying characteristics that her mother had. You know <laughs> this. You know I'm going to accomplish what I'm going to accomplish, and I don't care who's in my way or what the obstacles are. Uh, if you're not helping get out of the way um, but she she and uh, for that matter, you know Governor Schwarzenegger, you know I interviewed him um in two thousand three I guess right as he was trying to decide whether to run for governor, and he told me at the time um, that uh, you know talking to mr. Shriver, who or, you know early on had, had had said to 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 Schwarzenegger, you know you've got so much um, talent you've got all this celebrity and you've used it sort of to be a bodybuilder and, a, and, a, and, a, and an actor and that's great but really you need to throw yourself into service and, and, and um, Schwarzenegger I think will also tell you that he owes a lot of what he learned about politics and sort of the inspiration to go into service from, from his father-in-law.
0: Well in wrapping up Scott a neighbor of mine told me that he had a friend in the Peace Corps who said that uh that he and everybody else, I guess, loved Sergeant Shriver because he'd personally come out to see what they were up to and he would offer encouragement. And this encouragement was infectious. So I guess we sort of closed where we began, uh, noting that Shriver inspired people to do good work, uh, including you as biographer.
1: That's right. I mean, I think maybe that's his, his legacy. I mean, you know, you can measure it in terms of the number of lives he affected. You talked about the hundreds of thousands of Peace Corps volunteers who have gone through the program, and then you think of the number of, People, each one of those volunteers affected in the countries they served in, and all of the millions at this point of Head Start kids, and then just the the, the hundreds, if not thousands, of people that Shriver directly interacted with through his work in public service, who sort of you know came away like I did, um, inspired and and awed by you know his his idealism, and you know he sort of constant goad to you know work harder and do more, not for self-aggrandization or or to make more money or or, or sort of worldly ambition, but to make the world a better place. And as I say, you know, I'm a journalist and a cynic and, and, you know, a member of my generation, X generation. Those things sound sort of treacly and and banal, but, you know, you hear him say it and you see what he accomplished and they become much more real and and, uh, sort of a bracing reminder of, um, you know, there are limits to cynicism.
0: We've been speaking with author Scott Stossel. He's written what has been called the definitive biography of our subject today, titled Sarge, The Life and Times of Sergeant Shriver. Scott, thank you so much for speaking with us. Uh, Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.